you know, you can't change everybody, you can only change yourself. You know, I really value being autonomous, but I also love being a team player. And I don't have to be the boss. I know that about myself is that I'm just as happy being the boss and being an assistant. Kia ora, I'm Anna Keeling and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Hey, bienvenidos, welcome, benvindo, dobrodorshi, bienvenue to the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Sean Zimmerman-Wall. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. Goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. What a time to be alive. Across Western North America, we've gotten off to a great start and snowpacks are stacking up. Many of them hanging in the balance, anticipating the next loading event. Across the pond, the winter is late to the show throughout much of the Alps, and conditions in many areas remain quite sporty. On the other side of the world in Japan, well, I don't know. Maybe our listeners out there could help us out. It's hard to find any reliable data to tell what's going on. For all you sports fans out there, I hope you've been enjoying some FIFA and FIS World Cup action. The NCAA conference games for American football were also quite the stunner. And Formula One's on a sabbatical for the winter, so hope you're enjoying a little bit of free time on your Sundays. That's about all the bandwidth I have at the moment. In industry news, the American Avalanche Association is looking for your support. Through a generous anonymous donor, there is a $10,000 challenge grant. We're about 87% to that 10K total to get the match. And now is the time to donate before the end of December. The A3 supports Avalanche professionals through outreach, publications, and educational guidelines. The recently released resilience grants to support mental wellness in the avalanche industry, as well as some new scholarships for professional level courses, are yet other benefits of membership. Head on over and do your part. Check out the show notes for a link or go to coloradogives.org and search for the American Avalanche Association. Today's episode goes deep with a friend, colleague, and mentor of mine named Anna Keeling. She comes from a robust background as a New Zealand and American mountain guide, and has spent her time on the hill as a patroller as well. In addition to her accomplishments as an AMGA and NZMGA examiner, she also owns her own guide service and is pursuing a degree in coaching. She's also the proud parent of a teenage son who competes in free skiing events in two hemispheres. But beyond her accolades, Anna is a compassionate leader who lives her values and works to help others improve their craft. Our conversation covers a lot of ground. Some may be familiar to you, some foreign. We hope you enjoy this discussion as we tackle some difficult topics and share ideas about what the evolution of avalanche industry culture could look like. Drop it in with Anna. Three, two, one. Welcome, Anna, to the Avalanche Hour podcast. It's good to be sitting here with you on the 1st of December. Kia ora. Good to be here, Sean. Thank you for um, inviting me. And yeah, I can't believe it's December 1. Yeah, we've had quite a banner start here in the Wasatch, at least, to get uh, some good snow on the ground, and we actually got to enjoy a little bit of that together yesterday, and we're hoping for some more this weekend, so it's exciting times. 
Yeah, yeah, it's been a um, apparently a big start to the season. It's been a while since I was actually here in Utah for the very beginning of the season. And a couple of people have actually thanked me for bringing it, <laughs> which I'm not that stoked about because, you know, I'd like a little uh, Indian summer. Yeah, you'd like a little reprieve maybe from uh, your travels. Now, you're normally still in New Zealand at this time, is that right? Yeah, for the majority of the last 13 years, we would stay in New Zealand until December so that our son could finish school in New Zealand, but now he's completing high school in the U.S., and so I'm, you know, I got back here on the 20th of October rather than, you know, 20th of December, which is when I arrived back last year. And that that window, you know, between October and December, if I'm in New Zealand, gives me just a little window, of an edge of summer. Mm-hmm. And not having an edge of summer this year is definitely like, oh, okay, it's it's all go. Yeah, you know, here we are, like. Yeah, you know, over a meter meter of snow on the ground. Persistent weak layer is already sort of set set up within the snowpack, not at the bat base, which is quite good, I suppose. And uh, yeah, people skiing and frothing. Indeed. And yeah. uh, how are your feet after only being out of boots for three weeks? Um, two weeks. I was two weeks out of oh, ski wow. boots. Yeah. Um, they're okay. I got new boots. Nice. Um, they hurt. I haven't been skiing that much. I'm pacing myself. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's important. Uh, year over year, you got to keep that in mind. Well, it's really nice to be able to actually sit in an in-person interview. Uh, this is my first in-person interview as a guest host of the Avalanche Hour podcast. And I think for a majority of our hosts, this hasn't been much of a thing over the last few years. And it certainly opened up our doors to be able to communicate with people from different backgrounds and different locations easier. But I really value this in-person interaction and, uh, and certainly being able to ski tour with you this week. The opportunity to teach with you this month is really exciting. Uh, thank you for hosting me at your home. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm on the uh, Sean Z Wall program right now. <laughs> <laughs> it was good fun. Yeah, and it was great to get out yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Well, excellent. I was thinking we could uh, kind of bridge in a little bit with some of your background. Uh, you, you have a lot of accolades to your name, um, and then we can kind of get into some of the topics we wanted to cover. But maybe just tell us a little bit about who uh, who Anna Keeling is and and what's keeping you going right now and maybe a brief history. Yeah, so I am an IFMGA certified guide out of New Zealand. Um, Grew up in Otatahi Christchurch on the South Island. Um, My parents were avid skiers um, and my brother. Um, Yeah, so my family were all avid skiers. Started skiing about age four at Porter Heights ski area in the Craigie Burns. Ski raced fairly unsuccessfully for about a decade, although I was part of a scaffold that did result in um, the, uh, the Southern Hemisphere's first um, Olympic medal in the Winter Olympics um, in Annalisa Coburg in 1992. Hmm. Um, 1992 was a significant year for me too. That's when I took my Pro 1 um, and started ski patrolling. Ski patrolled in New Zealand and Whistler Mountain, um, for, on an exchange for a season, which was huge for me. Um, then, um, so I've been an Avalanche professional for 30 years. I've been IFMGA for 20 years, almost exactly to the week. Nice. And, yeah, I um, came to North America. Like, I'd already been here a few times for ski racing and stuff. 
And I, but I came here primarily to live in Utah because my husband's Scott Simper, documentary filmmaker. He's from here, cowboy, ex-cowboy, family still cowboy. He's from Utah, and so I've been here for sort of twenty-five years. But since that, uh, I didn't have a work permit when I first got here, and um, I was still doing my guide training. So. Uh, and also IFMGA wasn't really a recognised guide certification. So it was difficult to work here. I mean, apart from the fact that I don't have a permit. So I would commute to Canada, um, to the Canadian Rockies, based out of Canmore for about seven years, uh, winters and summers. And I would still go back to New Zealand for my guide trainings. Okay. Completed guide training in 2002. And then um, had... Um, our son Obi in late 2006 and he's a freeride skier so skiing's really defined our lives but since 2009 we've been doing back-to-back winters between New Zealand the Craigieburn range in New Zealand and then here in Utah but interestingly now as Obi's got more and more into his freeride skiing then he's often based in Wanaka and you know further south in the South Island so we're a little bit of a divide and conquer and very ski oriented. <laughs> right on. Well, it, like you said, it's defined a lot of your life and your choices, but uh, you also said that you like to surf and that's something that you're you're engaging with a little bit already this season and something yeah. that's been good for you. Yeah, stand-up paddleboarding um, is kind of my, my new great love. And I think what really sealed that was, you know, I supped the Grand Canyon this year, like 200 of the 235 miles on my stand-up paddleboard. And... I mean, my background there is as a, an adventure racer. And then because I've skied so long, I have good balance. So from adventure racing, I'm a strong paddler, a strongish paddler, nothing real fancy. And then, um, you know, the good balance from skiing. And so I find, and just the summer being in the water and the summer aspects of stand-up paddleboarding, whether that's stand-up paddleboard surfing or um, river surfing or river travel or even just I mean I'm interested in downwinding all aspects of the sport it it ticks a lot of my personal boxes but I think the main thing is that I get to um, be in the water and I get to um, be in the sun and I get to wear fewer clothes although you know I went surfing last week and wore a a full wetsuit but I'm still barefoot you know you still it's just really great to get out of ski gear Absolutely. Or mountaineering gear even, because I'm a climbing guide as well, of course. Yeah, you're wearing those bear traps on your feet or sharp implements. And uh, the way that you connect with the medium of water is different when it's frozen versus when it's liquid. Yeah. And so uh, I would imagine a lot of your confidence and desire to be in the water, does that come from your childhood and growing up in New Zealand? Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up right next to the Pacific Ocean, so I grew up on the water, sailing, um, swimming. I didn't surf as a kid, which I regret. Uh, I got invited to surf. There were a ton of grommets at my school. I mean, it was like a whole thing, but I don't know why I didn't. Just wasn't confident about it. Yeah, kayaking. Yeah, yeah, I've just been around boats and water my whole life. So it's been hard living in Utah, actually. I recognize that the distance from the ocean is always, it's actually always, I've always felt really disturbed by how far I am from the ocean and how long, I won't see the ocean for like months will go by and I won't see the ocean and that is really disturbing to me. I can't imagine growing up in the Midwest. <laughs> it's it would be tough and those landlocked states even in Utah, you know, at least we can 
enjoy our mountains here and take our mind off of being so distant from larger water resources. But uh, certainly it's nice that you're able to travel to um, the Southern Hemisphere every year and like you're saying, chase those endless winters, but also be more connected kind of with the ocean when the opportunity presents itself. And uh, I didn't know about the uh, Grand Canyon descent on the paddleboard, although I knew you were in the canyon. I didn't realize by which conveyance you were mostly uh, paddling. So that's incredible. I bet it, that was a nice experience. Yeah, it was amazing. I didn't expect, like on day one, I was on my paddleboard and I was feeling really good. And somebody came past and like a commercial rafting group and um, this group of people and this lady said to me, are you planning on paddling all 235 miles? And I go, uh, no, no. And then I thought, well, I probably could actually. And then, you know, I would give other people turns on my paddleboard, but I primarily paddled it myself. And there was only one whole day where I didn't use the paddleboard. And that was just that um, that section after Phantom Ranch. Just, it was, it was pretty big rapids. But then... So I paddled an IK instead, and then I felt pretty good in the IK, and I was like, oh, I'll just get back on my paddleboard. And, but I'd often find chicken shoots through the big rapids, and I kneeled down. And I really felt like what was cool for me is um, I was there with my family, with Scott and Obi, and I really felt at one with the river. And the thing is about the Colorado River and um, the land it travels through, the different tribe tribal land, um, the history of the river, it's an artery of the western United States. I really felt like I saw the land in a different way. And then let's never forget where the, um, the, the the river is a continuation of the mountains. But the Colorado River is a really powerful place, but I'm really frightened for it too. Mm. So, yeah, yeah you really, at, I was really at one with that river. So it's this vital artery, but it's really constricted artery now. Like it's got some major plaque buildup. <laughs> In yes. terms of what's being drained off it. And so, yeah, that continuation of like living in the Rockies, which the Wasatch Ranges in the Rockies, and then this river being such an important part of um, the Western United States and our lives, even if you don't think about it every day, is absolutely critical. And so it's such a privilege to be able to travel down it and with a really great group of people, but also made you really think about. Um, the people's land, the indigenous people's land who it passed through and um, and then, yeah, just how the river is being used these days. Ooh. It's a tough one to try to fathom what it looks like in the future. And I know that a lot of our listeners are river people in and of themselves um, and a lot of stewards of the outdoor environment. So hopefully we can use our collective voices and the power that resides in us to help maintain these sacred waterways, um, the access to these waterways, as well as, as you said, the continuation of the mountains, access to those very mountains that really give us, in a lot of ways, our purpose and allows us to engage with other, bring other people into the natural world uh, so they can become also stewards of that natural world. And I think that collaboration is such a powerful thing that just based on our position in our professions, we really have a, a good shot at creating more advocates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Collaboration is actually one of my key key values. And I thought, I thought, um, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but the other choice, of course, was community. But I felt like collaboration, because communities, this to me, was this idea that it was already established. But collaboration allows you to bring in other voices. Yeah. And so that's why I think I've chosen that as one of my five key value words rather than community because my community yeah it does grow but it has to grow through collaboration mm, well said yeah and 
Can you elaborate a little bit more on those uh, other four values and, and how you came to kind of put them together and create them and how they guide you? Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of um, the thought leader, um, Brene Brown, um, triple degrees in social work. Um, and she, I did her values um, you know, workshops like free on her website. It's super easy to do. And what you do is you pick your five main um, values from a, a list of words and then um, narrow it down to two. And my two are wholeheartedness, which is my aspirational value, and adventure which is my value that I probably live in all the time. And um, then my other ones are balance of work, life, family, and country, um, and um, collaboration. And I can't remember what my other one is right now. Um, it'll come back to me. Yeah. It's a it's a good exercise, I think, for people to be thinking about that. And you referenced Brene Brown, and she really is a thought leader in a lot of ways. And I see her book over there on your table, Atlas of the Heart. Um, and these kinds of things can really help kind of guide our purpose in life. How how long have you uh, how long ago did you endeavor to create this, and how have you kind of leaned or lived into those values, as Brene would say, over the years? Yeah, I'm a big fan of her braving inventory. I think. The, like, Brene Brown is kind of a recent um, development in my um, work, but it probably all started um, when, um, after my mother died. My mother died of cancer at age 70, and um, I wasn't quite 40, and um, my brother had already died in Avalanche, who I've talked about in um, previous podcasts, but my brother died in 1994, age 23, I was 25, in an avalanche at Porter Heights, where we grew up. He was driving a groomer, earthquake started in avalanche, groomer got flipped, he died of his crush asphyxia, um, at, at, yeah, at a young age. And so that was probably, and I was already, like, you know, into the avalanche professionalism and, and adventuring, I was more of an adventurer than anything. And then... Um, then when my mother died, who I was very close to, um, by the time she died, I was like, oh, what's wrong with my father? And he had Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease and um, Lewy body dementia. And so there was that. And so that, um, from having a, this very happy, contented, easy childhood to having my um, entire birth family that I was very close to sort of get sick and die or die tragically, um, then um, I realised that <laughs> I had some real grief problems <laughs> around age 40. And so... Um, the whole decade of my 40s, uh, I'm now in my 50s, um, was revolved around uh, a lot of grief work and personal development. And in that, I started to recognise where my guide training and some of the things I've gone through um, with my guide training, how um, I always felt that if I couldn't beat them, I had to join them. And then maybe I was like the worst at locker room talk and that kind of, the kind of stuff that I look back and I'm not that proud of. But also, um, you know, being sexually harassed at a um, heliski lodge and then thinking it was my fault that I had, you know, I caused this to happen. But luckily, when that did happen years ago, I had the support of my father and I rang my father and said, was this my fault? Did I... Was was I wearing the wrong clothes? Did I behave wrongly? You know, why did this guy come on to me so strong? That was really embarrassing and awkward and uncomfortable. And um, 
yeah, and so all the, through all those experiences, you know, I sort of through my 40s, I was like, okay, um, I need to find tools to belong, feel belonging, not feel imposter syndrome, not just feel like I'm always just trying to fit in. And I think a big part of that is moving to another country, or call that two countries, because first of all, I had to guide in Canada, and then I came to the, and, and at the same time, I've had to become a guide in the United States, and you're an unknown when you don't grow up here or whatever, and so you have to find ways, and I think initially, they were ways to fit in, and now I'm like, no, fitting in and belonging are two very different things. Belonging is when you know, you feel a sense of purpose in the community you're in and that um, you belong there, but fitting in is like you're trying too hard. There's too much. It's, it's effortful and, and you're pushing up against barriers. And just based on those experiences, the two experiences of grief and then um, the experience of becoming a female guide when there's very few female guides and fitting in by locker room talk or putting up with behavior that was subpar or acting you know in subpar ways yourself um, has really led me to like the work of someone like Brene Brown and how I can include more people um, I can be more inclusive I can be more collaborative and um, it's certainly not perfect and it will forever be a work in progress but is really defining my work these days very as, interesting as an avalanche professional but more importantly as a human <laughs> And well, a parent. And, and that's such a big thing. These yeah. other um, roles and identities that we take on as we mature uh, really impact and influence each other. Um, I know that you've also done some other studies that have led you towards coaching and, and things like that. So you're bringing in this really dynamic skill set. And I want to riff on the belonging and fitting in piece a little bit more, if I may. And what does that, uh, what has been your experience when you are working in a place where you feel like you belong? How does that impact your work and how you show up every day? Well, yeah, that is such a great question. And um, right now, I think the best example I can give is where, I, where I've started working up at um, Monument Snowcats, um, just because, you know, the operations manager, Justin, um, shout out to Justin, is just creates a really inclusive environment where everybody's listened to and everybody's important. It doesn't even matter if it's your first year guiding. Um, he just brings good people together and um, he, I feel supported there. And so even though I don't really, let's be honest, I don't really want to do another winter here. It's just, you know, I've done enough. But when I think about Monument and working for Monument and the great people I'm working with, that makes me pretty excited. I feel seen and I feel heard. Critical. Yeah. yeah. Critical. And that hasn't always happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and you uh, alluded to some of those cultural experiences where you felt like you were more trying to fit in and then you were actually maybe being incongruous with your own deep-seated values, mm. trying to be a part of, of those cultures, which, which can is, be tough. Which, and on a, in a physical sense, in the avalanche um, space, I reckon, in the avalanche paradigm, is that um, when you feel like you're fighting, then that's going to take away some of your senses, and that's really dangerous for us in this job. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, Sean, but I have a lot more friends who have died in avalanches than in car accidents or of cancer or illnesses or heart attacks. Even, you know, I'm nearly in my mid-50s 
and you know, still the vast majority of my friends have died in avalanche-related deaths. Wow. Yeah. And I think um, there's, you know, certainly a randomness. There's some, um, there, there's that whole stacking the odds um, factor. Um, but I also think it's a lot about sort of living life true to yourself, but then you have to figure out what does living life true to yourself look like for Anna Keelan or Sean Z. Wall. Yeah. Yeah, and there, there's quite a bit of self-inventorying and reflection that's required there, and um, it can be a bit daunting. It can be a bit dark. Um, oh, yeah. I'll speak from experience myself as well. Uh, working hopefully with um, a collaborative group of people that are either your colleagues at work, mm. your close friends, uh, although the term gets overused sometimes, maybe your mentors can help at least help you ask yourself the right questions um, on how to move forward. And in the work that you've done, what kind of um, kind of dividends have you seen in yourself or others since you've tried to lean into those values a little bit more? Um, what well, hasn't always been perfect, and I think I think I mean I, I might just preface it by saying that you know as a trainer of mountain guides, I didn't mention that I train guides in both the American Mountain Guides Association and New Zealand Mountain Guides Association, and I definitely feel like um, I struggle with feeling like maybe. I let people go down and failing them, but or failing them in aspects of the um, their um, guides examinations. And I, I always look at myself really deeply there, like you know, am I guilty of an unconscious bias? Did I see this person more than I saw another person? Um, in terms of like how visible people become, because um, like for instance, on a guides course, that feels like women are more obvious because there's fewer of them. And the guys kind of blend in, one guy blends into another guy to a certain extent because that's the expectation. And so you have to be really conscious. But at the same time, you have to be as objective as you can. It's, it's, it's ongoing work. But in terms of the dividends, I guess I feel like in my guide training, I never truly had a, a mentor like, honestly, if I was going to say I ever had a mentor to keep going and hang in there, it was my husband. And it was really not that he said, hey, go for it. It was more about how he lived, about his motivation to become a better cameraman and keep developing his skill sets. Um, but I never really had a true mentor myself. And so I think the dividend that has been paid is this ability to mentor other people. And I think, oh, I'm going to stop guide training. It's kind of exhausting. And I um, hate failing people and I have to lean into really difficult conversations sometimes and call people out and call myself out and call my you know co-instructors out but um, in terms of the mentorship they, these are people I really care about and I want to see them through and um, I want their experiences to be more positive even if they do have to hear hard things I want them to understand more why and it be more constructive than the experiences I have myself. <laughs> so I just want to do better by people than, you know, you just want to kind of improve the culture so that, yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't happen overnight. It happens through a lot of little acts and a lot of little embraces, if you will use that term broadly, where you're, you're bringing people in for the discussion. Maybe you are leaning into some discomfort but that there's growth on the other side of that discomfort, I think is a big part of it. And 
you mentioned yesterday a little bit on the skin track, if I may um, recede a little bit about, uh, and you just mentioned a comment here, seeing people through. What, um, what does that mean for you when you say that? Oh, so the people that um, have been on their uh, first level um, either guides training or um, exams or assessments, as we say in New Zealand, um, and I'm watching them and I'm following them and I'm rooting for them, and I think, okay, there's, there's a big, quite a big group of people. There's probably at least 10. And um, I want to see them through to IFMGA. Okay. Yeah, they've chosen to go on a big journey, a hikoi, the Māori word for journey. And I'm kind of with them on that journey in spirit, you know. And it's a real privilege. They're sort of younger and it's a real privilege to, you know, kind of be mates with them, like be friends, you know, and... Uh, it's amazing. It's it's such a privilege to be considered a mentor, yeah. And I get I guess um, on in the avalanche kind of paradigm, what one really interesting sort of mentorship experience I had earlier this year in March. You know when we had the persistent weak layer. Yeah, in here March, in the Wasatch. Yeah, here in the Wasatch. Tricky, tricky time of year. Tricky season after the forty days of fine weather. Um, my friend um, Winslow Passy. She was involved in a um, very dramatic rescue when she was guiding and um, she called me right afterwards. She said, I really need to talk to you because you're my mentor. And, you know, Winslow and I are quite close in age and guide training around the same time. And she's done a lot of um, really amazing work in coaching and um, health coaching. And so it's a real privilege to be called by someone like Winslow. And... Then um, I went as a support person for the debrief after the um, after the avalanche, and that was, I mean, an immense privilege. I was really scared. She said, um, "Do you want to come?" And I said, "I would love to. I'm terrified, but I'll come." And I took Brené Brown's Atlas of the Heart that had only just been released, and I thought, well, at least when I I, I have zero idea of what kind of emotion the group is going to have. But at least I'll have a reference book to describe their emotions. And when um, and Winslow facilitated that debrief, and when they came up with um, the emotion, the overwhelming emotion was guilt of mm. the group, even though they were being guided. But some of them, you know, had avalanche training. Several of them did, and they rescued um, Willie um, in 23 minutes. So it was a completely heroic rescue, and also very lucky. And... Um, that, but the primary feeling was of guilt. But guilt's really interesting because um, guilt is comes under kind of the shame umbrella. But guilt is this um, a kind of shame, but it's a positive shame where you go, this didn't go that well. Next time I can do better. This is what I learned. This is what I'll do moving forward. Whereas shame is like I'm so ashamed that I'm just gonna brush this experience under the carpet and pretend it never happened. And so in this experience of going to the debrief with Winslow, which was an incredible privilege, as I've said, um, getting to use that book, Atlas of the Heart, to describe the feeling of the group, we, we were able to, to define a positive moving on. And I'd like to think that, that the members of that group um, will be able to go into the backcountry again. And Winslow will keep on guiding and I will keep on guiding and Willie will keep on guiding because we learn things 
and then we move forward when we have the chance to learn things and move forward. Obviously, what I learned from my brother's death, he never got to move forward. So, you know, win some, lose some. <laughs> Fair enough. And, yeah. uh, you know, you bring up this kind of reference of Brene's book. Uh, it's sitting right there next to the swag, which is also a reference for our profession. Um, so, it, you know, considering these tools that you can use in these situations, whether you're coming in from the field and you're wondering about your snowpack tests or you're having a, a really difficult conversation maybe with your mates or your colleagues, um, or your employees um, or friends, and you're wondering what are we actually feeling right now? How can we put this into words and articulate it? The, the vernacular is so important and uh, the limitation of our expression is somewhat based on the limitation of our vocabulary. And so in Brene's work, she's really done a great job of bringing that vocabulary more widespread and it's becoming more mainstream. So I wondered kind of what uh, as you as you look to move forward, what might you take from that experience that you had with Winslow and company um, to kind of create future more collaborative debriefs that maybe move away from shame and more to processing guilt? Or what are your feelings on that? Yeah, yeah. Gosh, that's a great question. Hmm. I mean, often um, I reckon... That one of my shortcomings is that I talk to fill in space because, you know, I can always think of something to say, even though I'm only 50% extrovert. <laughs> you know, like I'm 54% extra extrovert and I'm 46% introvert. I'm more introverted than you would think, but that's because I'm gregarious. And, and so that's what you see first is that I'm gregarious. And so I think a lot of things that I write down for myself is talk less, listen more, but that's leaning into discomfort for me. And one thing I've really learned from um, Brené is to get curious. So tell me more. How do you feel right now? And then lean, because often I have conversations with people, like debriefs, where people start crying and I feel terrible. I feel really guilty for making them cry. But then Cry, I, it was, it's almost like the stigma that crying is a really bad thing when it's just a process of emotion and grief. And if you can use a reference book like that, you're like, well, can you describe how you're feeling right now? And then we can kind of dig a little bit more into it. Although, you know, be careful. I mean, I don't have a degree in social work, but maybe it just creates an opportunity for um, greater bravery, um, better reliability, accountability. I'm going through the the braving inventory here, um, you know, just understanding how to work through difficult things and difficult conversations with people. That is, if it's difficult for them, it's just as difficult for me. And leaning into that is allowing for discomfort to take place and manifest, but then you understand that there's going to be growth on the other side of that. Yeah. And it may take you three days, three weeks, three years to process it, to see that it was growth. And um, optimally, you're having some other conversations with people to gain perspective. But it's an incredibly powerful process that I'm looking forward to our industry embracing a little bit more. I think that we've done a lot of great work in a little bit more of like a adopting some of these like interdisciplinary subjects. I mean, we can think about um, how we talk about the, the human factor, how we've talked about heuristic traps, how we talk about 
risk and risk management, uh, thinking in bets and strategies and thinking like that, where we're we're pulling in these these authors or these people and subject matter experts from different realms and seeing how it might apply to our avalanche paradigm. Um, and at the end of it all, all of these disciplines are interconnected by the human element. And we have this incredible capacity to learn from one another if we have the right container for it. Yeah. And I think that maybe the container in our industry has evolved. It's been narrow. It's been wide. It's been broken. It's mm. been reforged. Yeah. And now maybe we're coming into a little bit of a shift in what that container is could look like. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's more, as it becomes more balanced, it's a greater represent, um, representation of different people. Yeah. Very nice. Um, when you're when you're thinking about kind of these different debriefs and maybe you've talked a little bit about kind of this uh, mindset of transparency, thinking about like being able to openly share is super important. Um, are there any other, you know, kind of strategies for, for dealing with events maybe where an organization or a colleague's uh, actions or values are maybe discongruous with your own? Like, how do you reconcile that and move forward? Yeah, and that, that is an interesting one because this year with my, you know, I had my own business and the Craigie Burns and um, for guide training, <laughs> we spent the morning doing a values workshop, like, you know, operationalizing, operationalizing our own values and, and then we spent the afternoon out in the field um, talking about um, res new, you know, the new, new rescue techniques and um, interpreting data from snow pits. So we were very like, we had a technical afternoon and we had um, a technical values session in the morning. And um, I found that that was really good for um, doing the values session was really good for sort of just understanding my colleagues and who I was working with. And then it just gives you better um, understanding, especially if you can talk about how people operationalize their values or what kind of behaviors do we engage in that are outside our values. Like a classic one for me is that um, the opposite for me personally of collaboration is competition. And competition was like this love-hate relationship. I ski race, I was an adventure racer. And then finally I gave it all away in about 2008. And I was go, I go, God, I hate competition. <laughs> but like when I'm operating kind of in my worst behavior, I'm competitive and comparative. I compare myself to others. And that, that's me operating outside my value of collaboration, mm -hmm. for instance. And so that kind of recognition is, is, is quite powerful. And... I think another like really key moment for me, not that you asked for key moments, but I'm just going to throw one out here, was in 2011 on the first ski guide assessment, um, ski guide exam I did in New Zealand, um, there was a candidate where at the end I thought, to hell with her, I've got to say this to him. And I said, this, what I'm about to say to you comes from a place of kindness because I care about you and I care about what happens to you. But sometimes I think you're cavalier. And it felt like such a brave thing to say to somebody, like I was actually like calling out something that I saw. And um, as it turns out, you know, he's really open to these kind of conversations as well. And he, he took it on board and is having, like, I, I doubt it's because of this conversation, but I've been watching his career and it's great, going really well. Strong guide, very respected, lots of clients. Yeah, does great work. And I, I just think I'm kind of glad I just 
leaned into saying that because maybe it wasn't always that smooth. And when you say, I believe in you, but be careful with when that moment when you're being cavalier. That I wish somebody had kind of said that to me. Not that maybe I was cavalier, but it would have been something else. Oh, yeah. And somebody did say something to, like that to me once, but it was a client. And he said, you know, you're a good guy. You've got lots of experience. Believe in yourself and let the reins go. Loosen off the reins. And that was, he was much older than me. And this was in Canada in about 1999 or 2000. And it was really good advice. He goes, you can understand, you can start to trust yourself when you can let the reins go a little bit and let people do their thing. Mm. Powerful. Mm. And those key moments, you know, they, when you've had some time to reflect on them or you've maybe seen how someone has started to operationalize a comment or even from a values discussion, maybe down the road, you see like, oh, that person's really leaning into that value of theirs. Mm. Um, because so often when we come into these workplaces, uh, and it is changing, I'll admit, but it's kind of like what patches on your jacket. Um, are you representing a guide service? Are you representing a guide agency or association? Are you representing some sort of other nonprofit of education? Like you may have some idea of what that organization values, mm. but you don't know what that person values. Mm. And there's very little space often in those trainings and introductions for that to really occur. And again, I'll mention that that's changing yeah. for the positive, but so much we reflect or we project rather uh, to our colleagues where we've been and why we kind of should be here, but we mm. don't dive into that little bit more inner. Well, it's scary. Yeah. It is scary. It's, it's vulnerability. It's really vulnerable. Yeah, but yeah. there is no courage without vulnerability. Yeah, and exactly. to be a mountain guide, an avalanche educator, a ski patroller, a forecaster, you have to be courageous. Yeah. And so having and uh, accepting that vulnerability is part of the job is something that I believe our profession is evolving into. Yeah, and it was kind of crazy at the AKG um, Guide Day because I, um, you know, I, I sent everybody um, the list of values and I said, if you can come to Guide Day with your values, that would be great. Choose your five and then down to two and then um, you know, talk about it. And they threw themselves into it. They were completely committed. And I was like, wow, I can't believe it. And then you know, the person who went first wasn't the person I expected to go first and it was just like, really cool yeah kind of blew my mind because I was I felt really vulnerable doing it I was like oh everyone's gonna think I'm a little bit woo woo but what the hell I'm gonna do it anyway yeah <laughs> I was like I haven't been in this industry for 30 years like it's time I, I can do my thing now I can change culture because <laughs> the culture was hard it was awful dirty talk and uh, I mean I'm not that I'm against locker room talkers I actually find it quite funny sometimes but not if it's at a cost to certain groups that's not acceptable and um yeah and and just that sort of stiff upper lip old colonial British thing that we have in New Zealand just doesn't really serve us even as New Zealanders anymore right yeah and uh you know, you bring up uh, in this conversation a few different uh, dynamics of working in one um, nation or the other. I mean, are there any like specific differences that you've kind of noticed that are different in maybe the guiding culture or the avalanche education culture or even patrolling, if you want to go there, that's kind of very different between maybe, let's say, North America and New Zealand? Probably economies of scale uh -huh. is massive. Um, in the Craigie Burns, we have such... 
um, ropey little ski fields, literally ropey, like with the, the, nutcracker. Yeah, the nutcracker. <laughs> and there's all these North Americans that come and work there. And I'm like, I can go up to these, these ski patrollers because I'm not, you know, I haven't been a ski patroller for a long time. But I'll go up to the ski patrollers and I'm like, how's it going? <laughs> and, and it, you know, I get them and they get me. And, you know, there's kind of, it's kind of nice to have that crossover. Um, as far as guides go, again, it's economies of scale. I mean, when I came here and became IFMGA in 2002, I think like I wasn't an American citizen or anything, but there was only one other American woman who was an IFMGA guide, and that was Kathy Cosley. Um, Margaret Wheeler and I were sort of certified around the same year or about a year apart. So there was I was one of the first women here. It wasn't recognised. Um, and then the other thing that has been a big difference is that you can't actually start guiding in New Zealand without doing guide certification, whereas here it's a more ad hoc style. Like you'll either get trained by an operation or you just start with the operation and the operation trains you in their way for their terrain, whereas in New Zealand you're trained for all terrain, ideally. Mm-hmm. And the expectation always of the New Zealand guide is that you will go overseas and work. You won't just stay in New Zealand. Even though we've got a huge mountainous area um, and you could just work happily in New Zealand for your whole life, but everybody's expected to travel. Like there's a, an expectation of um, the middle class New Zealander, let me just describe this, it's so, so economic there, that the demographic there, to travel. And so that includes guides as well. But in terms of the demographic, that is probably really similar. You know, white males. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the, the guiding culture there is, um, it's, it's an older guiding culture. It's kind of instilled. the And like you mentioned to the adventure uh, element, I mean, when I think of my experience in New Zealand and my discussions with other um, New Zealand nationals is there really is kind of this like, rugged adventure culture but there's also a bit of like really reliance on each other to some degree and it is a nation of not very many people Mm. comparatively to some of the ones that we live in now um, here in the United States I should say Um, and so yeah it's just interesting to kind of meet guides from from the country of New Zealand people like yourself and and see some of those differences and it's nice to hear from you what some of those other differences are but I've always noticed in my travels and this extends to being here, going to New Zealand, but then also going to South America, where I encountered a lot of New Zealanders, was there is that kind of like inborn desire to travel, mm. and that it's really like a big part of the the culture there. It's like a cultural expectation yes, for a lot of people. But having said that, there's going to be a lot of people there who can't afford it. Of course. Know? Yeah. Yeah. But then even like Australia is not that far or expensive to get to, and you can work there. So, you know, there are opportunities to travel to. Like, I mean, I get asked most days that I'm here if I'm an Australian, but the New Zealand and Australian cultures, are, accents are very similar, but the cultures are actually quite different. So when you go to Australia, you are travelling because um, a very different um, uh, landscape, very different Indigenous people, um, very different, um, I mean, we're both... British colonies, but, you know, really quite different. So, you know, you can travel to Australia and, and you really are travelling. Mm-hmm. So that is something. But, yeah, the, the expectation around travelling has been really interesting. And it's been really interesting to live in the United States this long. You know, I've been here for four presidents. Wow. 
Yeah, you'd think my accent would have changed, but no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is really good, um, a collection of stories here, and I, I really appreciate you engaging in so many of these questions. Um, are there kind of any other uh, instances or, or stories that maybe some of our listeners would appreciate hearing who are either you know working for an organization that they have a, a leadership position in and, and they see a desire for maybe their employees or colleagues to, to change and shift or things that they just want to improve. It's, it's not all about just changing everything. It's about kind of assessing and improving where we can and making marginal gains. Are there any other uh, tips that you've kind of learned or, um, or have thought about on, on ways to kind of to promote that in the collaborative fashion so that there isn't maybe a defensiveness from leadership or colleagues? Yeah. I think it just falls back on collaboration again is, you know, one thing that I always struggled with was this idea of women gossiping and the sort of negative around that. And then I started digging into that a little bit more and not not gossip in terms of, I'm not talking about gossip in terms of, oh, can you believe she was wearing that or had her hair like, well, in, I'm, I don't work like that. But it's more like the processing of your experiences is really important. Like the fact that of the harassment I received at the lodge in Canada and I rang my father to process it. I said, I need to process this for someone I trust. And so I rang, I was like, I trust my father. He was this sort of, he was this roguish dude, my dad. I mean, like, he sort of loved and hated him. He was a total character. But I knew he supported me. And in this instance, he would tell me if it was my fault. And I needed to know if it was my fault to move on. And so I think this, like, the process, you know, conversational processing is, it's always been important to me. But I've often felt like, um, you know, maybe, you know, you step over there's a there's an invisible line about what gets talked about and what doesn't get talked about. But what I want and what I want to understand is why is it not okay to talk about um, things that are vulnerable for us? You know, our personal struggles with grief or depression or mental health or even our gender and that kind of thing. Is that you know why why have we always felt sort of shame around these things? shame around vulnerability and so I guess that's what I've been learning about and what I lean into and sometimes I get scared and I run away and hide and then I go okay I've got to be brave again and then some things I realize and this you know on our conversation um, about the common workplace from yesterday that we no longer work at was that sometimes you realize that it doesn't there's some you've got to cut your losses sometimes it's just not going to work you just have to step away you can't change everybody you can only change yourself doesn't work for the changes you've made maybe it's time to cut your losses yeah and I've done that a few times and I've done that a few times where I didn't even know that's what I was doing and I look back and go why did I never go back there and I go ah it was toxic Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and there can be so many different little subtleties that maybe build up over time and you can't quite put your finger on it and then there can be some kind of seminal events Mm. where you're like well that wasn't what I would have done or that doesn't feel genuine to me and it's a little bit more obvious and easier to pinpoint versus maybe the more subtleties that build up over time and become cumulative. Mm. I think also in this profession, as, as we know, it's, it's not always the highest paying. You do justifiably so need to put in your time to gain mm. the experience, 
but that that time should be well compensated for. You should be a respected member of your team and feel like you can contribute and be listened to and belong. Mm. Um, certainly, there's also a bit of a entrepreneurial and uh, kind of freelance culture, especially with guiding, but also now with more um, educators being able to kind of move from different organizations to the other because a lot of the content's generally the same. Maybe the venue or the delivery is slightly different and, and certainly with guiding, but sometimes you are a team of one, sometimes you are a team of 20, mm. but you may be kind of migrating through these different cultures in one season. In one month, you might be working for three different operations. Yeah, or more. Or more. Yeah, and it's yeah. very common in order to kind of stitch together the work to put together a full season and then be also planning for your off season and what that looks like as as we know, there aren't a lot of year-round positions in this industry to come by unless you are traveling to the Southern Hemisphere from the Northern Hemisphere or vice versa mm. and looking to kind of continue on in the snow as much as possible. So it is great when you can pinpoint things or when you have a sense and you can step away. But we also recognize too that sometimes... Got to make a living. You got to make a living. But I do believe that um, as our culture shifts a little bit, people are kind of leaning into what feels right for them more than I just need to do this to make a living. Yeah, it's interesting because the word that's kind of coming up is reflection there. And mm -hmm. in guide training, there's a lot of like, you know, when we do debrief sessions um, using, I, you know, I'm a big fan of the John Heron self-impair assessment model, which we use in New Zealand, which is, you know, you talk about um, what you would have improved on in your assignment and then what went well and you'll, you'll do again. And um, that kind of reflection, especially if you're mercenary guiding, you're working you know, as a freelancer in lots of different operations, probably creating some space at the end of the season while standing on one's stand-up paddleboard or in your other chosen um, <laughs> sport that's out of snow is give yourself um, some time to reflect on your season and even do like a, you know, pros and cons of each company that you work for to and to decide if it's aligning with your values and what you need from your work not just money i mean that's important we've got to make a living but is it what you need in terms of your training and personal development as an avalanche instructor or ski patroller or guide and um, did you feel supported? And if not, why? And can you do anything about that? Or, you, you know, and a lot, a lot of people will go, you know, it paid really well, so I was prepared to suck it up. And yep, sure. That's why people go and work in mines. And yeah, because it, it pays well. And, and often I think, you know, you'll get there and go, hey, there's some great camaraderie. You know, and so you might go, yeah, the ski patrol, the boss really felt super unapproachable, but I felt well compensated and very supported by my colleagues. And um, the learning I needed, I needed mentorship and, you know, um, my profiles and my um, snow safety work, I felt really supported. So yeah, I can handle the um, aloof boss, that's fine, the old school boss, all good, because I get the other things that I need from it. But I think taking the time to reflect is really powerful and helps you narrow down where you do want to be. And one thing I've really identified in my guiding work world is I, you know, I really value being autonomous, but I also love being a team player and I don't have to be the boss. I know that about myself is that I'm just as happy being the boss and being an assistant because now I have a bit more choice too. 
Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes I ask myself, would I want to go back and ski patrol? What do I, how do I feel about ski patrolling again? Because, you know, I look and ski patrollers seem like it's the camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a good job and it's, uh, it's a great foundation for work in this industry. Oh my God, you learn so much. In about a very short people, amount of time. About terrain. Oh my God, you learn so much about terrain, about snow, you know, just in placing shots and first aid. Yeah. Key. Management of people and, oh, it's unreal, especially somewhere like Snowbird. I mean, how long have you been there? 14 seasons as a patroller. Yeah, 14 seasons as a patroller. And how many as the other jobs you do there? 17, yeah. 18th starting. Yeah. What keeps you there? In a lot of ways, like you mentioned, the camaraderie. Um, this season in particular, uh, following on last season, which uh, was a bit of a result of a, a tragic event where our snow safety director took his life, was we started a peer support network. Mm -hmm. and a team of people that are there to support the patrollers in their mental health and wellness. Are you quite involved in that? I am, yes. I'm one of the leaders of that team. And um, being involved and also only being at Snowbird part-time has allowed me to come back each time I come with a little perspective from my other work, stepping outside of the snow globe of the Cottonwood Canyon there and, um, and seeing and bringing back something that's valuable, even if I can't be on snow every day. Yeah like I used yeah. to be for over 10 years. Um, so those kinds of things are what's keeping me in the job. Ski patrolling is evolving. There are new mitigation methods and tactics. There is more training happening than ever before. And it is a very dynamic workplace, as you said before. So for those of you out there listening, if you're interested in a very dynamic workplace, look into ski patrolling at your local zone because it's a great foundation. If you wanna get into guiding and education or forecasting, I can't think of much of a better foundation to get you going if uh, if you can make it work. Well, and you can do them both. I mean, I know plenty of guides who are ski guides and ski patrollers, or they're, they're summer guides and they're ski patrollers in the winter. Yeah, it's, it's super cool. It is. Yeah. And so with all of this kind of thinking, like you've been at this for a long time and, and um, you've thought about this a little bit, but... Uh, what advice do you have for yourself or others of, you know, when and what is it like to admit when the toll of the job becomes too much? Yeah, yeah, because I'm going through that now. So um, the other day I took it upon myself to count up the number of winters I had. And I'm 53 and I've had 70 winters. I think it's 70. It might be 72. And um, we we had a summer in um, 20. 2020, 2021, because we ended up in New Zealand and Obi broke his leg badly. Except that the he broke his leg badly on the last day of the ski season and then that broken leg kind of defined the summer. You know, like managing that broken leg. He had to have two surgeries. And and so even the ski season even affected the summer and the summer didn't feel long enough or hot enough. Um, I shouldn't say that in these climate changing times. And um, so, yeah, that... Right now, I just recognise that um, it's okay to not go skiing every day. And if I don't feel like going ice climbing yet, I don't have to. And um, then I've just kind of planned a couple of strategic breaks, like, you know, going away for Thanksgiving and going surfing in San Diego um, in a car that was filled with people. So we carpooled there, um, just trying to be a bit conscious of my footprint as well, carbon footprint, but also recognising that, you know, to take care of other people, I have to take care of myself. And so that means, you know, maybe a bit more time at the climbing gym, which is really close and um, not going skiing too much. Like, 
you know, just pacing it. And then the same thing is like narrowing down my the mercenary nature of my work that I'm actually only really working for um, when working for Erie in a couple of weeks on a Pro 1, which will be um, interesting and exciting. And then a um, bit of a break over Christmas um, to have time with Fano family and then um, into it with Monument, you know, with that crowd of people I really like. And so just, you know, sort of narrowing it down to not working for too many people, not spreading myself too thin, and then going into sort of guide training later on in the season. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. sounds. Um, yeah, so I'm doing some guide training for the AMGA, and I'm doing that as kind of a big block and then sort of planning some summer activities on the other side. I'm like, where can I go surfing <laughs> on the two days I have off on AMGA programs? And yeah. Yeah, where's the warmest place I can go in the Pacific Northwest? <laughs> Good luck with that. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's great, Anna. I mean, this conversation has taken a lot of great twists and turns, and we've covered a lot of ground. Um, kind of in our closing moments here, um, was there anything that you wanted to reflect on from our conversation or add to or ask any questions before we close? Nothing really springs to mind. Yeah, I feel like we've covered a lot of stuff, kind of dug into the whole vulnerability of the industry. Gosh, and I, you know, all those years I was such a stiff upper lip. Just keep quiet and got on with it. And yeah, and and then, you know, in 2011 or even 2012, 13, I started recognizing, hey, I can make shifts. I could shift this, this shit, this bullshit that really hasn't, served me and hasn't served other people and move forward. And uh, it's good to collaborate with people like yourself and Drew at the Utah Avalanche Centre, you know, just been pretty, pretty amazing really. And, you know, I'm grateful to have had all this time in North America, even though, you know, my tendency is to start heading homeward and not spring winters here anymore, but it's been incredibly valuable. 25 years, you see quite a lot. Indeed. Yeah. So thank you for the opportunity to speak. It's been a real joy and fun. Well, thanks for sharing your energy with us and uh, helping our community to progress and, and being a part of the solution and sharing your perspective is really meaningful, Anna. Thank you. And I look forward to the, the future of working with you and, and seeing where you're headed. So thank you very much. Kia ora, Sean. Thanks for coming on the journey with us. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Music was provided by Ketza. Find music to inspire your intellectual curiosity. Ketza.uk Artwork was created by Mike T. His website is MikeTEA.com You can also follow us on social media, Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And wherever you find your podcast, please subscribe, rate and review us. Tell a friend, tell a colleague, tell your mom. It's a great thing to listen to while you're tripping across the country in search of the next fresh slice of pow. If you have any feedback or requests or just a question about how to get more involved with our community, send it to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Our next episode will be coming up at the first of the year. We hope you enjoy your holidays wherever you may be. And as always, keep your tips up, maintain your ability to be surprised.